Consciousness Radio, where we aspire, we desire, we conspire and delight in the delicious words of human awareness, driving it deep into the hearts of every being, whether it be in our business lives, our personal lives, or even our conscious lives, and perhaps giving you a hmm moment. It just makes you stop and think about the world that it is that we live in today. Digital Consciousness Radio, digitally enhancing humanity. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us on Digital Consciousness TV. Um, and for those of you who don't know about Daniel, check him out. Um, if you haven't seen him, Google him. Um, and if you haven't heard about him, then um, get out from under that rock and find out <laughs> more about who this amazing person is. So talking about Daniel Priestley. So who is Daniel Priestley, um, the brand, and who is Daniel Priestley, the person? Well, that's a strange question. Um, I wasn't aware that I had a big brand, but um, but thank you very, very much. Um, so I guess um, I'm well known as an entrepreneur. Uh, my background is, is in entrepreneurship and building businesses, um, and I built a couple of global businesses um, throughout my 20s. And, um, and then uh, I set up an Entrepreneur Growth Accelerator program five years ago uh, in 2010, uh, we've worked with 1,500 entrepreneurs around the world. Uh, along the way, I wrote three uh, three books um, on entrepreneurship, and I've given a number of talks around the world about entrepreneurship and uh, and and the journey that people go through. Um, uh, so, if I've got a brand, I suppose it relates to to the idea that uh, you know that that there's a great journey to go on with the entrepreneurial um, uh, revolution that's that's taking place. And um, I suppose behind the scenes, I, I live in London and I, uh, I've just had a little baby and um, well, we've had a little baby, obviously, uh, and uh, uh, I enjoy long week walks on the beach and and, uh, and then cooking and snowboarding and all that sort of stuff. So there we go. I've answered that as best I can. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So... Um... In with what you were talking about the entrepreneur and the journey, and we'll, we'll go into a little bit about that because there's one particular story I'd, I'd, I'd love to uh, get you to share with some of our viewers. But firstly, about the entrepreneur revolution, you touched on it very briefly. What is it in your opinion? What does it What does it involve? And um, you know, you wrote a book on this, so share the share the yeah. insights on that one. So the book uh, Entrepreneur Revolution really kind of delves into the idea that really talented people seem to be leaving good jobs in order to go and join small upstart companies. And this phenomenon is happening all over the world where you see that, you know, if we were to go back 20, 30 years ago, really highly talented people would have studied hard at university, got a job at a big corporation and climbed the corporate ladder and earned, you know, really great money and had a, had the best opportunity working for some sort of big company that was on the stock market. And today, more and more, you, you'll talk to someone who is, you know, incredibly smart and talented and they won't work at a big company. They'll actually be off starting a, bit, a, a business for themselves or they'll be working on a smaller entrepreneurial team, maybe a company that has less than 50 people. They might be part of that entrepreneurial team. And they seem to be able to express themselves and have, you know, their talent most valued within that context rather than a big business context. So the book aims to talk about why that's happening. And in the same way that there was um, an agricultural age which was interrupted by an um, industrial revolution and then we entered into an industrial age, um, and it was, a, it was a shift in technology. So it was literally uh, farmers who were farming, you know, the land with uh, horse and cart who were interrupted, you know, by 23-year-olds on tractors. And, uh, and it was, 
you know, fine tailors who were brilliant at sewing and craftsmanship who were interrupted by looms and um, sewing machines. And um, this technological shift uh, moved us from an agricultural society into an industrial industrialized society. And, and that was a wonderful thing for about 150, 200 years where we had great advances in medicine and wealth and, um, uh, you know, uh, income and equality and, and, and standards of living improved. But then we hit this point where we went, oh, okay, well, what next? And technology came along as well and it said, um, about 10 years ago, we, we created all this technology that allows someone in their bedroom uh, or their spare room to launch a business, to find a product, to find a market, to, to, to have a global uh, marketplace, uh, to pursue a passion. Um, you know, if you've got some weird little passion that you've got uh, and, you know, you think it's just you who's interested in this, well, on the internet there might be, you know, 10,000 people like you. So, you know, suddenly it's a business. So what we discovered is that people could express themselves. And, and in the book I talk about moving from the age of hands, which would be the agricultural age, to the age of heads, which is the industrial age, to the age of hearts, which is the, you know, the entrepreneur age where you pursue your passion. You don't pursue necessarily what makes the most sense. Um, in a corporate context, you pursue what feels right. Um, you know, a lot of talented people are now tapped into the way they feel and they're, and, and they're looking for more of a connection to what they do and they want to do something that has more meaning behind it. So I guess the entrepreneur revolution is, is people who are engaged in that trend. Awesome. So let's talking about entrepreneurs and that vision of coming from the heart, you've got a really interesting story that um, I think way back when where you first of all landed in the UK with nothing but a credit card of $3,000. Um, can you share that little entrepreneurial journey of, of what happened there for you? Yeah, so in 2006, I decided I wanted to um, go above the equator. I'd never really traveled. Um, I'd, from, from a very, you know, from age 21 to 25, I, I set up a national business in Australia. We were in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth, flying around, doing all this stuff. And then I got this opportunity to um, to travel, and I thought, well, I'll go to the UK. And being an entrepreneurial person, I'll go there with the intention to set up a business. And I set myself a challenge called the suitcase and a credit card challenge. And it was basically, can I arrive in a city that I know nobody uh, with nothing but a suitcase and a credit card and turn over a million dollars within the first 12 months? Um, so I, I wasn't $3,000. The credit card was actually a little bit bigger than that. Um, so I've been, I've been relatively, I've been reasonably successful in Australia. Um, I think my credit limit at the time had been expanded to $28,000. Um, but at the time the exchange rate was three to one. So it was less than 10,000 pounds, um, to arrive into the country with about 10,000 pounds and, um, and to basically kick off an entrepreneurial venture. So we did that. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. We, you know, in the first 12 months, we actually made, I think it was about three to four million pounds worth of sales um, and launched a business. We ended up with, you know, something like 15 to 20 employees within 18 months. Um, and, you know, and, and it was a, a great, fun, exciting time to, to rock up into a brand new country and, and uh, have a suitcase and a credit card and, <laughs> and, 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 kick, and kick off. So what was that mechanism in your head that made you want to do a challenge like that? What was it, what was, you know, what was it in you, in your DNA, if you like, that created that sense I, of wanting to t put yourself through that? I think I must just be, um, I must just be a little bit messed up. Um, why, why, it's a good question. Why would, why would someone want to do that? Um, 
I, I wanted some distance from Australia because I'd been traveling nonstop. Um, the year before I did it, I, I literally lived in and out of airports, uh, flying around Australia, growing my business in Australia. I'd gotten out of that. And I, I did, you know, Australians have this thing about, you know, you've got to go travel. And uh, London makes a lot of sense because you can arrive there, you can stay there for a couple of years, and it's, you know, great proximity to everything else. And because I'm un, I, I feel like I'm an unemployable person, I don't understand why anyone would want to employ someone um, like me, then I go, well, i got to start a business, don't I? So I've got to <laughs> rock up and I've got to have That's a business. I and totally get that. <laughs> Yeah, I think once you're, I always say to people, once you're an entrepreneur, you're never the same again. You've had the seizure, an yeah. entrepreneurial seizure, and that's yeah. it, you're gone. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You're, 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 you're wrecked for life. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> wow. Good. So... Talking about, uh, you were talking about the Industrial Revolution before. Now, in the education system, I want to tap on this a little bit and see what you think about it. So as I understand it, uh, today's education system was pretty much born out of the Industrial Revolution and it was driven by, say, an elite set of business leaders like Carnegie to serve pretty much only one thing, which was the industrial factory mentality. So train the masses to be machines and to be replaceable. Um, spinning yeah. them, you know, as I saw it, sort of spinning them out of the system and becoming very instruction follow, following type people and yeah. by no yeah. fault of their own, they're very limited to that outside of the box mentality. Given that the yeah. system hasn't really changed in, you know, since then, that the education system hasn't changed in a big way um, since then, do you think that with the entrepreneurial revolution that it will force our education system to change or are we still being run by the rich elite that want nothing more than for us to be working bees and to, to run their corporate factories, so to speak? Um, well, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the uh, schooling system actually goes back to a, a battle in 1806 where, um, where the Napoleon, Napoleon's armies beat the king of Prussia and uh, the king decided to declare that every uh, school-aged uh, person or that we would know as a school-aged person, every child would begin military training. Um, in order to become a military um, uh, a, a troop, a member of the troop, a, a, an infantry. Um, and, um, and it was a military, it was the very first compulsory schooling system and it was a military school. And then the governor of Massachusetts in the USA flew over to do his PhD in Germany and saw military schooling and said, this is the answer we've been looking for um, for the, uh, the factories. And, and what we need in, in Massachusetts, they had all these Catholic immigrants who had five children and they wanted the parents to be able to focus on working in the factory during the day. And they wanted the kids to be trained up as the next uh, generation of factory workers. So they modeled the uh, compulsory schooling system in America, uh, which became the model for the rest of the world. They modeled it on this German um, military schooling system in the early 1800s. So about 1830, 1840, this new style of schooling had, had kicked in and it was designed to marry up to the uh, industrialized workforce. Um, and, um, and then it's interesting because some of the world's most successful people at the moment, uh, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Elon Musk, Taylor Swift, uh, all went to Montessori schools uh, and they, they were schooled. You know, and when you ask, when you actually ask a lot of these people in interviews, uh, why are you so successful today? They often say, "Well, it actually started in kindergarten. I was taught to be an explorer and an adventurer." In Montessori, the children are referred to as explorers; uh, they're not students. Um, 
so, look, it is actually changing, Neil. It's um, you know there are a number of really great online education organizations, the Khan Academy, which gets a million dollars a year from Bill Gates to run. Um, there's another one, uh, something gray, uh, which is all about uh, learning at the pace that's right for the student and it's self-directed. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's progressive schools that are using a lot of um, creativity in their classrooms and iPads and learning and inspiration. But of course, there's a legacy. And when you've got something as big as a, a government schooling system that has been hundreds of years old in the making, it's not going to turn around, you know, overnight. But my expectation is that within the next 10 years, you will have, um, you know, a great shift in, uh, in in the schooling system. And I think that um, I think that it's in, within everyone's interest to have people who are creative and can think. Um, we, you know, we, we, we're going to see in the next 10 to 15 years a great, a massive shift in the way we live our lives. And the reason for that is because throughout all of history, whenever you introduce a new technology actual uplift of that technology and the disruption of that technology takes 15 years before it really begins. Um, so uh, we think of uh, the airline industry as 1940s, 1950s, and that was 1920s, 1930s that it kind of was available and kicking in. We think of um, uh, TV as sort of 1950s, 1960s. It was actually 15, 20 years before that that the, the TVs were available. Um, we think of personal computers as like 90s and, and like late 80s, but it was actually late 70s that personal computers, you know, were being introduced. So there's this big 15-year gap. And when you look back with a bit of distance, you think to yourself, oh, well, you, you know, 15 years, well, you know, what's that? Well, consider this. Google was only 1998, right? So we're only 17 years into Google. So looking back, if we go forward in time from history, from 1998 to 2013, uh, you'll sit there and you'll say, oh, yeah, Google was just getting started, right? Or this concept of the internet and search and, and, and uh, that was just getting started in that time. And when you think about, you know, you think about um, Facebook launching in sort of 2006, uh, well, you'll sit there and, you know, from a, from a distance, you'll sit there and say that in 2015, Facebook was less than 10 years old really and it was just getting started, that we hadn't even seen the effects. It was just a toy that people were playing with at that time. Mm. But as we, go forward in, as we go forward 10 years, what happens is this um, disruption happens and convergence happens. So you get a convergence of, um, you know, we've seen convergence with smartphones, that uh, cameras, video equipment, social networking, uh, all of this comes together in one device, a music player, uh, all in one device, in the smartphone, and then suddenly, boom, uh, it never looks the same again. So what's happening at the moment is this divergent technology, and it's happening across industries. So the you know engineering industry is discovering what it means to have engineers across borders and thinking about different problems and sharing their plans and open source and all of those sorts of things are, are hitting that industry. And, you know, the animation industry and... Um, the industry around medicine and, and, and changing, you know, the way we approach health and wellness and medicine. So all of this stuff is just starting to converge and disrupt. And the next 10 years will be absolutely transformational. Um, and, we, you know, we're really kind of crossing this threshold of uh, being able to all that we do. Um, and in the next 10 years, a lot of people's jobs are going to be automated. So the question... Uh, 
Oh, I think we're we're lost you. Hello. Uh, I think it must have been like some sort of a a rambling alert <laughs> that, um, that that as soon as I'm as soon as I'm on a rant, then Skype kicks in and says enough is <laughs> enough. Rant alert. Rant alert. <laughs> yeah, Microsoft has installed uh, rant alerts into Skype now. Uh, sorry. So yeah, let's uh, pick up where you left off, and I think we were talking. There you go. About, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so I think it's going to change. I think yeah. it's going to change. I think that um, I think that uh, it has to change because uh, if you begin automating professional services, which is what's happening now, then all these very smart white collar individuals who have very good degrees are suddenly left wondering, well, what the hell am I going to do? Um, I mean, the biggest one that's about to happen of transportation. So. Um, where you know we're now seeing you know automatic cars that drive themselves and trucks that drive themselves and train systems that drive themselves and, and even recently when we had a plane crash that was due to um, you know uh, human misconduct uh, you um, you start to ask the question well wouldn't it be safer just to have a plane that flies itself mm. you know so um, <laughs> you know so so a lot you know a lot about the world is going to change yeah yeah. Fascinating. So, and when we talk about that, like if bringing it back to basics, a, a question that I've got is, you know, this this revolution of say the global small business, as you as you quote it. Um, do you see it purely as a cyclical journey? It's almost like I, I kind of see it like we're coming full circle and we're bringing it back to local, back to community, back to organics, which was pretty much how it was done in the old days. Only now what we're doing is we've reinvented ourselves and we've got more technological advancements. It's sort of like how I see it, that people are waking up to this old ideology of doing business and realising that it doesn't serve us anymore. And the question that I have is, have we left it too late, given the majority still sit in front of the TV box with the, and get fed with media that pretty much convinces us that our net worth equals self-worth and instills fear and scarcity to keep us in the system until we're 65? Is the change happening fast enough that the minority will become the majority? Yeah, so um, I think that... Um I think that we live in this really beautiful time where you can choose the choose your own adventure, right? And this idea of local community has changed as well. So you and I, you're in Perth, I'm in London, and we're having a, a conversation because we share ideology and we share values. And it doesn't actually matter that the geography is such a great distance. Because of our shared ideology and our shared values, we're part of a community or we, we feel a community sense. Um, and the world that we're living in now, I think, is going to be more and more designed as a choose-your-own-adventure. Um, for someone who doesn't want to play um, a big, inspiring, exciting game, um, what's great about the world that we're going into is that they'll never starve. They'll have lots of entertainment. Um, they can sit and watch 20,000 channels of news and uh, look at stupid stuff on YouTube and pictures of cats and um, and there will be so much cheap food and cheap entertainment that you know you can you can do that if you want to. Um, and for someone who says, you know what, my life, I want to be bigger than that. I want to go and check out Everest, and I want to go to New York and stay in a great hotel, and I want to um, you know do all these fun and exciting things. Well, then the world is also opened up has opened up in a new way for that. I mean, Tanil, if you and I were born in any other time in history, the type of life that you live and the type of life that I live 
just would be beyond comprehension. You're living, you are living the the life of the most elite person on the planet from probably, you know, a hundred years ago at most. You know, so you're, you know, the the number of countries you've been to, the number of restaurants you've eaten at, the the number of bottles of champagne you've been able to pop the cork on, uh, the the number of uh, holidays you've had the access to information and knowledge that you have. I mean, you are literally living like a king or a queen would have lived not that long ago. Um, so what's interesting about the time that we live in is that we live in a time where it's totally choose your own adventure. So um, I don't think it's out, you know, I don't feel like I have a responsibility to try and shift the masses. The masses have a responsibility for themselves to, to each, each person is on their own individual journey. Um, but what I do love is that I can commune with people who have recognized the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And so the entrepreneur, you know, if it's not a person's core skill or their natural talent to run their own business, for example, but they and they prefer maybe to, you know, uh, pretty much maybe not being convinced that they can, they might be able to do it, might be able to do the business, they may not have the, that, that core skill set that it takes to be an entrepreneur. Um, Given that everyone is is uniquely different, I mean, can everyone be an entrepreneur, or is it something that you're born with, or from your experience, is it you know? I mean, I know I started my first business at eight years old, so it was it was in my DNA. <laughs> but some people sure. haven't really, um, you know, may not have the skill set or the, you know, them. Can you learn to be an effective entrepreneur? Um, I think that uh, entrepreneurship uh, includes many elements and there's an element about entrepreneurship that is about founding a business or starting a business and coming up with an idea and getting it started. And in my opinion, that's a very overrated part of entrepreneurship. That's where all the glory and the credit goes to and it's wrong. It's not, it's not the right answer. Um, entrepreneurship goes through many, many stages. So there's having an idea and getting a first customer and starting something which is, of course, a valuable part of any business, but it's by no means the most valuable part of a business. Um, getting a business from $2 million to $10 million is an incredibly valuable part of any business journey, um, and it's normally not the person who's good at starting a company that's good at scaling a business. So um, there are certain people out there whose job is not to go and start a business. Their job is to go and find one that's got promise and to help them to scale um, and to, you know, and to be part of an uh, to be part of entrepreneurship. Mm. So entrepreneurship is really it's about um, it's about creating things in such a way that others find them valuable, and it's about having that creative energy that you pour into something. Um, and um, you know, and re- realistically, if someone was sitting there saying, "I'm totally inspired by what Tanil's doing," and she's so smart that she can just go out and start things and and get things going. Well, the reality is, is from talking to you about other business ventures that you've had, is that you want those people to come and join your team. And you're sitting there going, if you're inspired by what I do, please come and help me because, like, I'm really good at getting things started, but I need some help in getting things, keeping them going and getting them scaling and getting them growing and all of those sorts of things. So um, some people are going to be great at operations. Some people are going to be great at sales. Some people are going to be great at um, innovating something and making it even better once it's already started. So I just, I just personally think too much credit goes to the founder. Um, too much credit goes to the person who started the idea and got the first customer or who got the first little bit of funding. Um, not enough credit goes to the people who scale businesses and goes to the people who join the team as you know person number 20 or person number 30. 
when we talk when I talk about entrepreneurial enterprises, I'm really talking about enterprises of less than 250 people. Um, you know, so you know they can be anything from one person, two people, right up to 250 people, and um, right up until about 150 people, it can still feel like a little tribe, a family, a fun group, uh, you know, a, a group of people who share the vision and share the entrepreneurship. And provided the founder is mature enough in their journey to allow people the, the room and the space to, to, to take part in the entrepreneurial journey and take part in entrepreneurship, then, um, then I think everyone can be part of an entrepreneurial journey. Not necessarily uh, everyone can be labelled as an entrepreneur by society because they weren't the person who started it on the very first day, but certainly people can be tapped into entrepreneurial creative energy. And if we're talking about like something that you know you spoke about is is with the entrepreneur, there is very much um, there's an element of a personal branding that goes on with you know when you talk about your key with the key person of influence and um, positioning yourself, which is one of the other books that you authored around key person of influence. Now, to, I'm interested in your opinion around the personal brand you know, mentality. Some say that we're building a narcissistic society of, you know, the personal branding which contributes to this me-focused culture. Um, and there seems to be a fine line between uh, the self-promoting and being narcissistic. And it's like if you're building a brand, would you know, in an, in an organisation, do you need to be comfortable with self-promotion? And if you do, then how do you do that? Well, I'm, I'm not a big believer in self-promotion. I think that, uh, you know, people are people and everyone's got an interesting story and everyone's got an interesting journey. When I talk about someone being a key person of influence, uh, in my mind I think about them not being in the spotlight but being the spotlight for others and being the spotlight for something. So, um, you know, if I, if I think about someone like Oprah Winfrey, she's not a shameless self-promoter, although some people could interpret it that way. What she is is she, she shines the spotlight, uh, providing people with a daily dose of inspiration, and she shines the spotlight on great books that she's read. She puts the spotlight on interesting individuals. Uh, you know, she, but she is, she is showing up as a spotlight, not trying to be in the spotlight, and she creates a spotlight. So... You know, when when we created the Key Person of Influence program, it really wasn't about me trying to be a key person of influence. It was about me trying to provide a framework for other people to be a key person of influence in their industry. Um, and the people who have become most successful on the Key Person of Influence program are those that understand the difference between chasing the spotlight or being a spotlight. So we've got a client, for example, who's trying to solve the pension fund crisis here in the UK. And he has this amazing business called Reddington. And, and, and when he shows up to talk, I mean, he's so magnetic and he shines very brightly. But the reason he shines brightly is because he just speaks completely to the issue that he's passionate about. So he's there to shine the spotlight on the issue of the pension fund crisis. And he's there to, to share his insights and his wisdoms and his stories about why we need to address this issue and this, this crisis. So um, being a key person of influence is not about, uh, uh, you know, some sort of uh, narcissistic endeavor. Um, it's more about putting, putting all your own self stuff to the side and showing up for others and being willing to play a leadership role, being willing to actually have a voice for something. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that one. It's, it's just a nice thing to hear from you as well because I think, 
I see it a lot in in the society in society that kind of you know the known tall poppy syndrome kind of thing that's here in Australia. <laughs> you know, it's kind of um, you know that it's that essence of yes being the platform to um, create or help. You know, my favorite my favorite saying is that I'm, I'm my I'm about letting people's light shine. It's got nothing to do with me, but it's about letting other people's light shine. Um, so it's really yeah. nice to hear that uh, your you know your opinion on that. Um, now you've authored a measly three books. <laughs> I don't know how you do it and everything else you do, but um, three books, amazing. Uh, the Entrepreneur Revolution, Becoming a Key Person of Influence, and Oversubscribe. What's been your process of stepping into being an author? Because um, you know I think you know some people have got the the gift of writing, some people don't. But you know if you don't, there's obviously ways that you can make it happen with a good plan but how did you come to decide that you know it was time to become an author and what um, was your in two yeah in 2006 uh, a good friend encouraged me to start writing a blog and I didn't understand blogging whatsoever at all I uh, my mother is a journalist but I really never at all thought of myself as a writer but I found a blogging platform where every blog would kind of have at least 100 views and a good blog would have a 500 to a thousand views and 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 that was everyone. There was a lot. It was just a vibrant community of people all sharing articles, and I was part of it. Um, I ended up buying that business at, at one point. Um, and um, anyway, uh, I, I started writing these blogs, and I kind of really felt that it was uh, incredible how you could share an idea, and within you know literally hours, you've got people feedbacking on it, and you know talking about it, and coming up with this stuff. So I started writing a series of blogs. And exploring, you know, this idea that I could write a weekly blog and it was only a few hundred words. And then in 2009, I was in Singapore uh, and I went wakeboarding and I hit this jump stupidly. My confidence exceeded my ability and I just uh, damaged my knees. And, um, and, I'm, and I basically ended up having to sit still for two weeks. And I thought, well, this is it. This is the time I'm going to pull together some of my blogs. I'm going to fill in the gaps. I'm going to write this book, Key Person of Influence. So in 2010, the book Key Person of Influence came out and it absolutely tra uh, changed my life. So suddenly thousands of people are reading this book and suddenly everyone wants to hear from me and uh, I'm talking on you know, stages in front of thousands of people and, um, and, and uh, you know, massive multi-million dollar opportunities come off the back of it and all this stuff is, is happening. And, uh, and naturally, I start thinking, wow, well, this is a really, this is an interesting way to communicate. And, um, and I, so I fell in love with the writing process. I also really enjoyed having a book and it kind of becomes addictive. You, you think, you know, once you've got that first book out there, you start, what's, what's weird is that when you put your ideas into a safe place uh, called a book and you know that those ideas are there, what's weird is that the brain just suddenly says, okay, well, that's safe. So I'm going to go and have some more ideas. So um, as soon as KPI was out, um, my brain starts flooding with all this information about talented people leaving traditional work and going and finding their own adventure, and out comes Entrepreneur Revolution. Um, and then, you know, over the last 18 months, I just became fascinated by businesses where people are willing to line up. And um, so the book Oversubscribed is all about these businesses where people will line up, join a waiting list, um, or pay a premium, and it's about why, why in a world where we've got infinite choices and you can easily find an alternative, why would people line up for something? And what are these businesses doing that's so different? Um, and you know, and I wanted to find out what makes a business so magnetic that people are willing to 
uh, go out of their way because we live in an instant gratification society. So why would someone uh, buy into delayed gratification? What, what would a business have to do in order to get people to delay gratification and line up? Um, and, uh, and I found that an incredibly fascinating way of looking at the world. And for, for two years, I traveled around the world looking at businesses that do that. So pizza shops in Lake Como and uh, handbags in Paris and uh, Ferraris in Singapore and bottles of champagne in, in uh, Mallorca. And I, I found all these really funny, interesting stories where people lose their mind and, uh, and, and, and go crazy for a brand. And, um, and, and I just, it was just a fun, interesting thing to write about for, for, the, for those two years as I was traveling. That's amazing. And so as you, uh, you know, what, what was your strategy in, I mean, we can't cover the whole strategy, but I mean, what was your basic strategy in creating a book and then getting it to having thousands of people suddenly downloading it or, or buying it? How, how did that um, sort of occur? Did you have to do obviously some offline marketing and online or was it, how, how did you manage that? Well, um, well, for starters, I don't, now, currently I don't think about online and offline anymore. Um, so I, I really feel that we've hit a point where it's just, it's just all life. So people's experience of life is walking down the street, looking at their Facebook on their phone and checking up to make sure they didn't get hit by a bus. Um, and you know, that's, that's life now. So there's no, you know, I don't feel like there's any, uh, there's no, there's no join there's no joining mark between online and offline anymore. Online is offline, offline is online. Um, we don't have traditional media and, and social media anymore because all the major traditional media publications, they cottoned on, they got, they got part of it. All of their articles are online, all their you know, social sharing buttons. There are no traditional media organisations anymore. All of them are, uh, have, have jumped, jumped, you know, leapfrogged into the uh, online world or what would have been called the online world. So, for me, I just don't. I don't think about online or offline, and I don't think really about marketing. I just think about a person, and I think um, uh, the, the word marketing has this word market in it. And I don't think that there is such thing as a market. There's just a person who's going through life, experiencing the world, and they're trying to make sense of it. And they're just one person, and they've got their phone and their laptop and their life, and they're kind of like trying to figure out what the world is about. So when I think about how I promote something, I just think about one person and I think about how do I build a relationship, how do I uh, share, how do I um, uh, hand over insights, how do I get it to them in a way that makes them feel connected, makes it feel like relevant and timely. Um, so sometimes that happens on Facebook, sometimes it happens on Twitter, sometimes it happens when I'm talking to an audience, sometimes I have a Skype chat with a friend in Perth. Um, so, uh, so it's just um, it's just more that idea of showing up for a message. Uh, I think we can get very lost in technology um, and forget that. Here's the analogy that I, I like to use. Um, if you imagine, why does Alicia Keys work? And Alicia Keys works because she has this beautiful voice, and then there's technology that leverages that beautiful voice um, because she can sing so well. Someone else came along and said, let's record this and distribute it. Let's get this beautiful sounding voice that you have and, and get it out to the world. Um, and uh, it's not the microphone that's magic. It's actually her voice that's magic. 
and the microphone facilitates more people getting access to that. So when people get really excited about technology, they're missing the point. The point of technology is to magnify the voice. Uh, so what most people are doing is they're sitting around going, what's the latest automated webinar software? What's the latest thing that does auto-tweets? And what's the latest thing that does, you know, tech and all that sort of stuff? And, and the, the truth is, is that if I try and sing right now, technology does me a disservice, not a service, because my singing voice is not Alicia Keys, right? So, um, so, so the technology is making my life worse, not better, because my singing voice is no good. So, um, so what people do is they... They say, oh, well, forget about what the message is. Forget about what I'm all about. Forget about the relationship and the person and forget about that. Think about the market and the technology and the distribution channels and, and, and you know, just think about how you can pump, 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 pump all this stuff out there. And, uh, and what they're missing is that none of that matters. In fact, we just live in such a noisy world that people are, are just so good at blocking you out. They'll just find a way to block you out. They won't, they won't hear it. So when you think about... Uh, if we went back in time to say the 1900s or 1900 and you say, who's going to make the most money out of the invention of the microphone? Is it people who understand microphones or is it people who learn to sing? And actually the people who will make the most money from microphones will be bands that have great music to play. And the people who learn about microphones will actually be roadies and they'll get paid 15 bucks an hour to go and set up microphones. Mm. Um, so, so the important thing here is not to focus on the technology but to focus on the message. What is it you're going to say? What are you going to be involved in? What are you up to in the world? The best question I got, my, my, my mentor from years ago, this guy who built three multi-billion dollar businesses and he built three multi-billion dollar businesses, one after the other after the other, he just used to ask me all the time, what are you up to? What are you up to in the world? Like what, what is it when you wake up in the morning, what are you up to? And, um, and, and he about this question of good, he was, it was of, always, Dan, you've got to be up to something. And if you're not up to something, then what's the point? Yeah. Go watch TV, go watch, go watch, go watch people who are up to something. Mm. Um, but he, he never used to say, Dan, you've got to go learn about this new technology, you've got to go and build this quick database, you've got to go and license this um, thing. It was, always, it was always coming back to, Dan, I get that you want to do that, but what are you actually up to in the world? And I think it conditioned me to think about this, you know, what's the message? That's awesome. Um, with corporations now, so looking at the big corporations, um, do you feel that they'll still be around in years to come, um, you know, 50 years down the track. What, what, with what you know in the entrepreneur revolution, the global small business, um, what kind of business society do you think we'll have in 50 years' time? Well, I absolutely think we'll have some really, really big corporates um, and they will look different to the way they look today. So what will happen, in my opinion, is that uh, there will be these huge businesses but if you peel back the brand and if you peel back the layers, you'll find lots of little entrepreneurial teams solving problems. And the way those entrepreneurs will look at the big brand is they will look at it like they're leveraging the brand as opposed to the brand is leveraging them. So the corporate used to look at the employees and say, we leverage your labor um, and you can't, you can't live without us. And I think what will happen in the future is a lot of very entrepreneurial people will actually say, 
I think I can get more done if I partner with this big brand. You know, um, if I go off and if I go off and join, um, you know, Coca-Cola Labs or something, uh, you know, maybe I'll I'll have more ability to distribute my product and my solution to more people. Um, so. I think corporates are going to learn to partner. They're going to learn to see each other as um, integrated. Um, and I think corporates will look very different. They won't be so top-down and structured. Um, here in the UK, there's a business called John Lewis, which is the equivalent of sort of um, David Jones or Meyer. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is it's actually uh, got something, it's owned mostly by something called the John Lewis Partnership, which is all the employees own a piece of the business. And just by working there for two years, you get accepted into the John Lewis partnership and um, you're now an owner of the business. And it's the most unbelievable experience when you go into John Lewis and start talking to the, the people. They talk to you like they own the place because right. um, they do. Wow. Um, and, you know, you, you might go into the you know, menswear department and, and say, oh, can I, you know, can I get uh, a belt in, in this particular size? And they... And they really, like, they'll make recommendations, they'll go out the back, they'll find the thing, they'll say, actually, I think there's something better for you. You know, I mean, they really, they really care. Um, and John Lewis has been this really successful brand here um, by partnering with every single person who's working there. So that's one example. But I think you'll see companies like uh, Accenture and Deloitte and all those companies starting to say, actually, we really, really properly have to treat all of our people like their partners and like their um and like they're part of the creative energy of the business. Awesome. You'll have to excuse my dog in the background. She's just decided to bark at someone walking past. Um, Fair so, so what would be five core things that you would say to any entrepreneur that's watching this that they could apply immediately to become a key person of influence? Wow. Well, if I had to narrow it down to five, I'd choose the five Ps. Uh, ah. so, num <laughs> so number one... Um, is about perfecting your pitch. So when someone says to you, what do you do? You've got a really great answer for that and you, you have a, uh, a perfected pitch uh, and you have the ability to create clarity for other people because a great entrepreneur is not someone who has clarity themselves. They're someone who create, creates clarity for other people. Second thing is you would um, have the confidence to publish content and you would publish blogs and articles and you'd publish a book or you'd publish code, or you'd, but you'd publish. Um, and that's going to help build your credibility and your authority. Third one is you'd build a product ecosystem. So businesses are successful because of not one product or service, but because of a product ecosystem. Um, fourth one is you'd raise profile and you'd shine the light on the issues and you'd actually raise the profile of the issue that you're addressing and then the fifth one is you do partnerships. You get other people on board and you'd, you'd make it successful because of the partners you had around you. Beautiful. Nicely packaged. Thank you. It's, it's, almost, <laughs> like, it's almost like I've talked about those five things before, isn't it? I know. Hmm. <laughs> um, so someone, should write, someone should write that someone down. Someone should write that down. Yes, I think so. Hang on. Excuse oh. me. <laughs> um, so what do you think? Last question that I ask all of my interviewees is what do you think it means to be digitally conscious? What do I think it means to be digitally conscious? Um, well, for me, what it means is to acknowledge that we live in very uh, dynamic and incredible times. We, you know, if you wake up each day and you start to think about the idea that had you been born in any other time in history, your life would be radically different. Um, you know, so 
you know, in the last thousands of years, um, you know, most people did not live the kind of lives that we live. Um, and the, the, the first part of being digitally conscious is to acknowledge the opportunity that's here and that it's so, it's so all around us that we just totally take it for granted. So we're sitting here frustrated because Skype is a little bit, you know, uh, um, bunny hopping a bit, you know, it's, it's dropping out a little bit and it's not as fast as I would like. And damn it, I should be able to have a free video conference with anyone on the other side of the planet and it should just work, damn it. Um, <laughs> and, we, and we lose sight of the fact that it's freaking amazing. It's fucking incredible yeah. that we have the opportunity to sit here on a very inexpensive device using a free service, having two friends pretty seamlessly between Perth and London. Um, and someone's gone and laid the cables under the ocean, someone's gone and made the Wi-Fi network, someone's gone and built the software, and now we can just have this conscious conversation. So for me, the first part about being digitally conscious is being grateful for the times that we live in and just being grateful for, you know, the opportunity of being able to create a global community of like-minded people and then out of that gratitude, contribute. So share what you've got to share um, someone else has gone and done all this hard work for us. Someone else has built all this infrastructure. You know, it's an obligation to then share into that um, and to and to give as much as you can, as often as you can, uh, into uh, you know what what's unfolding. Love it. That's an awesome answer. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, if people need to find out anything else about you, where can they go to, Daniel? Uh, Amazon, uh, you can have a look at my books. All my best ideas are in Amazon. Um, I have almost nothing else of any great value to say outside of what I've already written there and hopefully I'll come up with another idea at some point in the future. No um, but for now, for now all the, best, all the best stuff's in Amazon. Beautiful. All right, I'll shoot some links in amongst this so people can uh, get access, direct access to it. So thank you so much for making the time and, uh, and chatting with me. And, um, yeah, I look forward to watching your journey continuing. And um, I have been following it since, gosh, how long have we known each other? <laughs> it's been right back. I can't even remember how long it's been. But um, it's yeah. been an epic journey to watch you go from strength to strength. And it's a real pleasure to have you um, on Digital Consciousness TV. <laughs> Likewise, Camille. Thank you so much. Thank you.